Now, this morning's Bible reading is from 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 20 to 40. And you'll find it in your leaflets, the reading there. 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 20 to 40. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but do not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god, perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name will be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers, or 11 kilograms of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the ball into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Keshon Valley and slaughtered there. Good morning. Uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that your, is your word that changes us. It is your word that is truth and divides. Let's pray this morning that our hearts are open, that we are awaiting your word. Father, help me to speak your word correctly, and uh, we just pray, Lord God, that you do your work in our hearts and our minds this morning. Amen. Happy New Year. Was well, that New Year last year? No, last week. It was last year. Is that right? Yeah. There you go. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. It's 2024. Hideyoshi, a Japanese warlord who ruled over Japan in the late 1500s, commissioned a colossal statue of Buddha for a shrine in Kyoto. It took 50,000 men five years to build. But the work had scarcely been completed when the earthquake of 1596 brought the roof of the shrine crashing down and wrecked the statue. In a rage, Hideyoshi shot an arrow at the fallen colossus. I put you here at great expense, he shouted, and you can't even look after your own temple. Both last week and this week, we are looking at very famous stories in the Old Testament, um, really to see what they really represent. Two famous contests. Last week, it was the shepherd boy versus the giant. Today, we look at God's prophet versus the prophets of Baal. Now, before we dig deep into this story... Let's look at the events that led up to this mountain. Now, we have a divided kingdom. We have the, the, the Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Now, we have a map inside the handouts, if you want to look at that map, and that gives you a bit of an indication of what we're talking about there, the, uh, the tear-off slip. Um, that will show you the, uh, the map of the divided kingdom. Now, it's been about 190 years since David... David's famous battle with Goliath. And now the northern kingdom of Israel is doing the very thing that they were meant to have banished from the land, and that is they worshipping idols. The king in Israel is Ahab. Now, let's get a proper introduction to Ahab. We really need to go back a couple of chapters, um, really just to introduce and understand the depth of his idolatry and sin. In chapter 16, 29 onwards, we are introduced to Ahab. Now, it's not in your handouts. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 16, 29 and onwards. Uh, but I'll read it out for those who don't have their Bibles. In the 13th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. That's huge. Well, we've had some pretty wicked kings in Israel over the time, but he did evil, you know, in, more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, 
But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set out up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made Asherah poles and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings before him. So this man did so much evil in the eyes of the Lord that he considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam, his, uh, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, is mentioned here to, just to show how wicked Ahab's sins were. You see, Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, was so sinful, did you know that he, he built two golden calves, one at Bethel and one at Dan, well, golden calves, if you remember the story of, the, uh, of Israel coming out of Egypt and building the golden calf and how wicked that was. So he built two, one at Bethel, one at Dan, and he said to the people, here are the gods that led you out of Egypt. As sinful as that was against God, based on Ahab's actions, that was nothing. It was trivial compared to what Ahab was doing. Now, Ahab's wife is one of the most famous Biblical name characters in the Bible, and that's Jezebel. She was the priestess of Baal. She really, she made worship, idol worship trendy in Israel. She loved Baal, the Canaanite false god of rain and vegetation. And she has endorsed prophets of Baal who have their way in Israel, and they lead God's people astray. Now, Elijah has been officially labelled a disturber of the peace because he opposed the hideous worship of Baal. But Elijah, like David last week, Elijah is not the hero here. In a modern world addicted to superhero movies, we want to crown the hero, the underdog champion, don't we? But this is not Elijah. In fact, Scripture intentionally gives us as little details about Elijah as possible to ensure us that our focus is not on him, but on God. He is a Tishbite of Tishbe. That's it. That's all we know about him. That's his history. That's his deep biography. But God has set apart him apart and called him to be a prophet. The job of the prophet was to remind the king and God's people of God's law and hold God's people to account for their idolatry if they do not repent. This unholy worship of idols has led to a drought in Israel as Ahab and God's people have not repented. This false idol, Baal, the false god of rain and vegetation, has no power. He had no power to end the drought. He's meant to be the god of rain, but no power to end the drought. But Israel and its, and its king continue in their idolatry. So we come to the contest. And now my first point here, the challenge, follow only the true God. So Elijah is severely outnumbered. 850 false prophets, so not only the ones of Baal but others, and the, and the one true prophet of God. But Elijah sets the challenge. Let's read uh, 18, 21 to 26. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose for them one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. 
Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, yeah, what you say is good. Good deal. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God and do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. And there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. When we look at the word waver here in verse 21, where Elijah says, how long will you waver between two opinions? It's an interesting word. It's the same word that describes the dancing around the altar in verse 26. Other translations use the word limping and refers to the, to the prophets limping around the altar. The, uh, the Hebrew word pasak betrays the irregular steps of the prophets of Baal and their ritual dance. So they're, you know, doing their ritual dance, limping around the altar. I'm not going to do that because, you know, I can't dance and I'm not a prophet of Baal. <laughs> but um, it was their irregular dance showing that they were limping. Elijah is placing the people of Israel in the same boat as the prophets, in that just as the prophets limp around in their rituals, the people are no better than they. They too cannot move properly because they refuse to choose between God and Baal. The question of Israel is implied here. They're almost asking, well, can't we have both? Can't we have Baal and God? Well, the answer is no. Of course, no. Elijah cuts directly to the core issue. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. When Israel entered the promised land centuries earlier, they were commanded by the Lord to devote to destruction the inhabitants of the land, who were idol worshippers and God's enemies. The reason for God's command, if the idolaters remained in the land, they would corrupt God's people. And this is what happened. God is a jealous God and abhors idolatry. And this is seen clearly in the first and second commandments. In Exodus 20, verses 2 to 4, let's read those first two commandments of the, of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the, sin, of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Israel is guilty, very guilty, of breaking these two commandments. They have so easily been swayed by Baal worshippers and they thought that they could have their cake and eat it too. Can't we be people of God and still have our idols, they would say. So although we in the Western world are not faced with the physical false gods like the Israelites from without, we are faced with our idols within, aren't we? The art of materialism shows its ugly head in our commercials as we covet our neighbours' cars and houses. The idols of sensuality and sexuality, twin heads of the same false god, this is very much the god of this age, perverse and requiring all to bow down before it. But the idol that is at the root of it all 
is really self-worship, self-idolatry. Matthew 6, 24, when Jesus is speaking in relation to money, says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word serve here indicates the work of a slave. A slave, in the sense, belongs to their master. Although over two millennia have passed since the question Elijah poses to Israel, this battle still rages on today. Who, church, do you serve? Somewhere in the modern church goers have decided we can have both. We can serve God on Sunday and ourselves on Monday. Part service is no service at all. So let's go to the second point. The false God does not answer. So our service to a God that does not answer cannot answer prayer. That's pretty obvious, but perhaps not for them. Let's read verses 26 to 29. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal this morning from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is, in, surely he is a god. Perhaps he is in deep thought or busy or travelling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. And they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. I wonder if there was any confidence that these prophets had at the start. They were in agreement with the contest. So did they believe that their devotion, their worship, would wake their God to action? Now, the false God, as I mentioned before, the false God Baal was the God of rain. So maybe they thought, well, if, if, we, if we cry out long enough, maybe God, our God will speak through thunder. And, he, you know, he was the God of rain after all. Now, generally, when we think of thunder, what do we think? We think of lightning. And you could then anticipate the Baal worshippers thinking, if we cry out long enough, if we demonstrate how desperate we are, maybe Baal will speak through thunder, lightning will follow, spark the offering and consume it with fire. This dancing, this strange contorting of their bodies, that would have worn them out. For hours they did this. They would have been absolutely exhausted. Still no answer. They cried aloud for hours. Still no answer. They cut themselves. The blood flowed. Still no answer. Now, one, everyone who knows me a fair amount of time knows that I'm have trouble with being a bit too sarcastic. I, I am a bit sarcastic sometimes. But I can confidently say that none of my sarcastic jokes have ever been as timely or as on point as Elijah here. Shout louder. I mean, he's a god, isn't he? He must be able to hear. Perhaps he is in deep thought or busy or travelling. Maybe he's on vacation. He's forgotten or he forgot it was on. He was watching the footy. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. The thing is, as amazingly sarcastic as that is, that's not really why Elijah was doing it. They're not an example for us to roast someone or to tease someone. Each comment here is a direct reference back to their false god. In other words, Elijah is saying, your false god was meant to have knowledge. Maybe he is musing, trying to obtain this knowledge. 
Your false god is maybe relieving himself and providing rain to another people because we're in a drought here, it's not happening. Your false god is maybe on a journey. He is not everywhere. Maybe you are worshipping in the wrong place. Your false god cannot be awoken by your worship and crying out. Nothing must be able to wake him. You see, a real God would not be subject to any of these limitations. Our God does not sleep or slumber. One of the key doctrines of our faith is the immutability of God. And that is to say that the unchanging quality of God. Malachi 3.6 states, I, the Lord, do not change. Our God is sovereign and is unchangeable. Our God is faithful and true. He does not adapt to the new trend and his word does not become untrue just because it's unpopular. But this is not the same for Baal, whose prophets at this point must have been spent trying to conjure up a response. Let's read verse 28 and 29. So they shouted louder, slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, and no one paid attention. A false god who does not, cannot answer, cannot act. We have three clear points here. No response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now let's look at point three. The true God answers and consumes the offering. Now... It was Elijah's turn. Just imagine the, uh, you know, it's, it, they've done now. It's been hours. It's been a long match and they're tired and they've given up. I wonder who called it. If there was a ref who called it, goes, all right, guys, let's calm down. You know, let's get some Band-Aids. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's take a breather. All right, Elijah, it's your turn. No, that's not how it happened. Elijah said to the people, come here to me. In verse 30, they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which has been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. Elijah stated, started by reminding the people of covenant relationship that their God is a God who established a covenant with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was Israel. The God who establishes the law and the commandments on how he is to be worshipped. They have forgotten their God, but God has not forgotten them. Let's read on. In verse 33 onwards, he arranged the wood, cut the bulls into pieces, bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar, around the altar, and even filled the trench. Now, you may have heard it preached in reference to this point that Elijah made a major sacrifice here, drenching the sacrifice, the bull, with water and the, and the altar. Now, water, you know, it is said that uh, Israel were in short supply of because it's a drought. Therefore, this sacrifice showed how serious Elijah was and that God would listen because he gave up a natural means of survival. But I think it misses the point. If you have your hand out this morning and you see that map, 
Have a look at the map of Israel. Now, there's a small red square on the top left side, uh, like a small red uh, outline, and that's Mount Carmel. It's the top left of Israel. It's on a bit of a peak. It's pretty much near water by, by what I can see there. It's surrounded by water. There's no, there's no point, there, there's no, uh, I don't think the issue is about giving up your natural resource. I think that misses the point. The point here is that there is no natural means of setting fire to the sacrifice. Elijah took that out of the equation. He drenched it with water. There was no natural means that that can be combusted. Now we've, uh, you know, we live in Mount Barker, so there's always rain, isn't there? All right. And I wouldn't mind a little bit of summer, but I, uh, I got a fire pit and uh, put a fire, put it down, and and uh, then it rained the night that the night after, and I thought, oh, I reckon I could use that again. Wet water, wet wood does not combust very well. It's uh, it's uh, it's not really the way to go. You need it dried out. When you cut a tree down, you let it dry before you use it as firewood, or it smokes. So the natural means, the natural ability for that thing to combust on its own is out of the question here. Only God would need to answer, and God does answer. Let's read. At the time of the sacrifice, in verse 36, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. In direct contrast to the prophets of Baal wearing themselves out, painstakingly trying to get Baal's attention, who is not real and does not answer. Here we have Elijah in full confidence that God hears and God will answer. And the reason for the prayer, for the whole contest, in fact, so these people will know that you are God, that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And God answers. Oh, yes, he answers. Let's read verse 38 and 39. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You know, I guess there's one thing we can relate to a superhero movie here, and that is there was a sky beam. There, you know, God's fire fell from the sky and consumed the offering. It consumed everything, not just the bull, consumed the, the, the altar. It destroyed the altar, licked up the water. Everything points to God here. They knew, God's people knew that, that it had to have been a work of God. No human hands, no chance or repetition could do this. This was all God. Deuteronomy 4, 23 to 24 reads this. It said, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God's fire represents his holiness and burns up anything unholy. If we go quickly to Isaiah 33, 14, it tells us, The sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling grips into the godless. 
Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? The people of Israel saw, act, saw God act in his holiness as he consumed completely the sacrifice and the altar. And how do they react? Well, they finally react rightly. When all the people saw this, verse 39, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. No one at Mount Carmel doubted the Lord was true. And the Lord was God and that Baal was powerless and was nothing. It was God who acted, God who brought the hearts of the people back to him, and God who broke the drought in the following passage. God is a holy God, and his wrath is against those who worship falsely and love idols. So in God's holy act, Elijah exercises the duty of a prophet and puts to death the false prophets of Baal. Let's read verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away, they seized them and Elijah and had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. May I suggest that all sinners, all of us, are deserving of such a fate. As we read earlier, the prophet Isaiah said, who can dwell with this consuming fire? He goes on to say that only the righteous, but that is not us. There is no one. There is one, though, who bore the consuming fire of God's wrath. And that is our Lord Jesus. The sacrifice took the blow due to us and became the sacrifice acceptable to God. So as we conclude today, what are some points that we can draw from this passage? Well, there is one thing that God requires of us, and that is all of us. God does not share. Although because of our sinfulness, we run quickly and without much hesitation towards sin, towards our idols and the breaking of God's commands. But we have Christ, who died in our place, who took on the punishment for our idolatry. But more than that, he lived a sinless life, blameless life, fully devoted to the Father. And God credits that devotion to us and puts that faithfulness on us and puts our blow that was due to us on Christ for our deviation. Christ calls all believers to turn from sin and only serve him. You cannot serve two masters. This is always the theme throughout scripture and human history. God cannot accept half-hearted, double-minded worship. Our dedication to him must be full. Ultimately, this is the point. Only God is the living God. Only he can hear and only he answers. He, therefore, is the only one deserving of our worship. God is immutable. So just as he heard the prayer of Elijah, he hears the prayers of his people today. When we pray, we can have full confidence that we don't pray to a man-made God who cannot hear, but to a living God who hears and acts on his people's behalf. God saves his people. God is faithful to his people, even though his people are not faithful to him. It's an amazing thought. You know, as a Christian, I've been a Christian now for nearly 30 years, 29 years. I was a young lad of 17. You thought by now I would have it down pat, that I, you know, I'm pretty sinless now. That's the opposite. I, you know, I, the, the sins that we all struggle with as the years go by, the idolatry, the, the coveting, 
you know, how every day I have, we have to come to that altar and say, God, forgive me. But we have a faithful God, even though we are unfaithful to him. He is faithful to us. He loves us. He remains faithful, even though we are not. The two Bible stories we've looked at over the last two weeks have this in common. They both show God supernaturally intervening to save his people and to bring them back. Last week, we read in uh, 1 Samuel 17, as when David says to Goliath in, in verse 47, he says, All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. In likeness, Elijah says in our key text today in 36 and 37, he says, At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so they people may know that you are God and you are turning the hearts back again. God acts to show that he is God. God is sovereign over all. God saves his people. He saves us from the punishment of sin. God saves his people. God is the hero. God is the one who acts. God is the one that saves today. He saved then. He is still the same God. May I, may I implore us all to seek after him with our whole heart. Yes, we will fail. Yes, we fall full short. But we have Jesus who did not fall short. And God looks at Christ. But, he, but we, need to, we need to pursue him with our hearts and our minds. We need to put aside our idols. And we need to worship him with our whole heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who saves, that you are a God who is faithful, that you are a God who, who provided these signs in Scripture to show us your character, your immutability, that you are a God who is forever gracious and kind, that you are always slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Thank you, God. Help us all today. Help us all this week and for the rest of our lives as you, if you tarry to worship you and to worship you alone, to be faithful to you, to grow closer to you. God, forgive us for our wavering, but we pray, thank you that you give us a chance each morning as your mercies are new. Be with us this morning. Amen.